Welcome to the Forest Overstory podcast. This podcast explores forest stewardship in the Pacific Northwest, helping landowners and professionals gain new insights and information in the field of forest management. The Forest Overstory is a product of the Washington State University Extension Forestry Program and is supported by the Washington Department of Natural Resources and the Society of American Foresters. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the Forest Overstory podcast. We're glad to have you listening today. My name is Kevin Zobrist. I'm a professor in extension forestry with Washington State University, serving the Puget Sound area. And I'm joined by my co-host today, Patrick Schultz, fellow extension forester for Southwest Washington. Patrick, how are you doing? I'm doing well today. Excited for this, uh, this episode. Very good. Well, we have a special guest, as always. Our guest today is Oli Helgerson, and Oli is a retired extension forester for Skamania County, where he worked for many years doing extension forestry work in the Columbia Gorge on both sides of the river. Oli, how are you today? Doing well, my friends. Um, Good to be here. Well, we're very glad to have you. Uh, to start out with, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up at WSU and kind of what your role was. And I'm also really interested to hear more about your dual position on both sides of the river working for both Oregon State and Washington State. That sounds really interesting to me. Okay, Kevin, I'll try to give you the short, concise form. Um, basically native of Iowa, although I was born in Tennessee, only lived there for six months, ended up studying forestry at Iowa State University, which sounds like an oxymoron, but Iowa has uh, one of the oldest land-grant forestry programs in the country, and the word was that uh, the Minnesota loggers didn't want it in Minnesota, so they put it in Iowa where there weren't many trees. Went into the Air Force, had a chance with the GI Bill to continue my education. I wanted to learn more about forest biology, forest ecology, so that's the path I followed. I ended up following John Gordon out to Oregon State, got a doctorate there in 1980. When was it? Um, Yeah, 81. Worked uh, for the FUR program, the Oregon State University Forestry Intensified Research Program. Anyway, worked there for 10 years, and uh, it was a a non-tenure track position. In 1990, the position here came open for area extension forester uh, serving a five-county area in Washington. That would be Clark, Skamania, and Klickitat in Oregon. It would be Hood River and Wasco counties, as well as being the county agent, the the chair, so to speak. And I served in that position uh, from 1981 to when I retired in 2008. Uh, So what my role was as county extension agent, uh, the chair, one's prime responsibility is 4-H. And uh, forestry was important, but uh, 4-H carry the flag, so to speak, and I'm very happy to have been part of that, had some successes, and feel good about that one. So that was my role in region. 
well, you did a lot of work during your career and and more than we could possibly get to in a, a 40 minute conversation you know i'm not pretending to be able to cover all of it but some of the key things that you were involved with i definitely want to get into and, and one of them was the firewise program which for listeners that might not be familiar um firewise uh, it's taken on a few forms over the years but in general it's a uh, as a, a list of practices that help people protect their homes from wildfire. And um, you are there kind of on the ground floor, from what I understand. Can you tell us a little bit more about your involvement in that? Yes. Uh, FireWise is a separate entity from the federal Secure Rural Schools and National Forest legislation, which kicked off the so-called Skamania County FireWise program here. Uh, I accidentally or not expropriated the name FireWise for our local program, and FireWise people called me up and said, that's okay, we'll, we'll support you on this when you're doing exactly the kind of work we'd like to see done. Uh, so that said, uh, we worked with, at, at that time, grant funds were available to local, fi to communities for fuels mitigation projects and other things, if they first had a community wildfire protection plan and inside of two or three years we had a community wildfire protection plan for the communities around each of our five fire districts and kudos to the fire chiefs involved their staff and kudos to the coordinator the last one gail overton who just was outstanding she made stuff happen um and and brought us down the home stretch in very fine fashion. And uh, as a result of that, there were funds available for cleaning fuels along a couple of main roads around the county. And we also put on evening programs with the fire districts and the DNR uh, in the local communities. And there I learned the value of brevity. 20 minutes is just about right. At 30 minutes, we're pushing the envelope in terms of losing audience participation, uh, which is different than the academic model. So that was a very useful lesson. Uh, what else happened in FireWise? Well, the legislation ended, but uh, the, that baton was is now carried by the conservation districts. And I tried to work with them and in mid to late summer and get a notice in the paper uh, about how to protect one's home and then refer back to the local conservation district, the Underwood Conservation District and their staff uh, for inspections and, and that sort of thing. So that was the fire. Uh, well, yeah, I did get an award for that or the, I think the, or somebody mentioned that the DNR said we were the first county in the state of Washington to have all of our communities firewise certified. I had no idea we were, but uh, happy to find that one out. So uh, that's the report on that one. Any questions? I've got one for you, Oli. How yeah. has that has that changed at all over the years since you did that, or have those communities maintained that certification? Good question. When the legislation expired, it also took with it grant funds. And that was the incentive for the fire districts to do stuff. The fire chiefs are incredibly busy. They are volunteers. And um, 
with that in mind, Gail and I decided we got to set a maximum of 90 minutes per meeting with the, when we meet and let's set this up so we can get everything done in three meetings. And we did. And I thank Toastmasters for inculcating in me the value of having a logical, workable agenda and following the agenda. And that's what we did. And it worked. And again, good job to Gail. She was, uh, she was phenomenal. So, but to answer your question, yeah, like a lot of plans, it just sits on the shelf and I uh, um, don't know what's being done locally. Well, you know, in, gosh, I hope I'm not butchering this, but I think it was 2014 was the Eagle Creek fire uh, in the gorge. And I know there were fires on the Washington side um, as a result of that, which is really pretty amazing when you think about a fire's ability to cross the the Columbia River. Um, but was there any, were you able to see, you know, any impacts of that firewise programming um, on, on how communities were evacuated or responded after the fire to that situation? Um, I realized, you know, that, that might be something you don't have a lot of details on, but I'm just curious. Well, um, as it turns out, it was uh, September 2, 2017 when it started. And it was a teenage boy throwing a fire a firecracker down a ravine over on the Eagle Creek Trail across the river. And yeah, it took off. And my position at that time uh, was as a amateur radio operator, part of our local Skamania County Amateur Radio Emergency Services. I was called out. As far as whether Firewise made a difference, I couldn't tell you. Uh, we didn't lose any structures on that, I don't think. Uh, when it jumped, the uh, river here landed on Archer Mountain, which has a few homes on it, but not many. And the DNR got on it right away. What made a difference on that fire was amateur radio. Uh, this is a side story, but we had an operator down there with the DNR crews, uh, and they had more people per acre than any other fire they've ever had, or something like that. They had the maximum amount. Their radios were the wrong radios. So what to do? Their fire boss, well, our guy introduced himself to the fire boss and said he had a direct line to the county sheriff right there in his hand. Uh, they contacted the sheriff's office. The sheriff's office contacted Olympia. And an hour and a half later, a state patrol car with 40 or 50 radios showed up at uh, Archer Mountain. So I, I can't give any kudos to Firewise or not kudos one way or the other, but in terms of amateur radio <laughs> emergency services, it proved to be very useful uh, in that instance. Uh, so that didn't directly answer your question, but as far as effects of firewise on the fire, can't say. Uh, more recently, we had the Tunnel 5 fire, which took off in the railroad tracks about eight miles east of here, burnt up a two or three hundred foot bluff, and took out, I think, eight or ten structures, about half of which were homes, perched right on the top of the bluff. And uh, again, some homes made it through, others didn't. But whether that was a result of, of applying firewise methodology or not, I can't say. Well, Oli, let's switch gears a little bit and tell us a little bit about the Forest Youth Success Program that you did. 
Yes, I'd be glad to. Um, the Forest Youth Success Program was also part and parcel of the Secure Rural Schools legislation. Uh, the legislation read something like to teach local youth about the surrounding forest. Well, as a forestry educator, I thought bingo. And there's also an employment a bit in there to provide summer employment. Well, that caught the eye of Tom Lindy, who was the lead recreation technician on the Wind River Ranger District, uh, just uh, eight miles up the road, and um, Bill Bentley, who was then superintendent of the Skamania Carson School District. And somehow we got together, had a cup of coffee, and we all looked at each other and smiled and said, hey, we can do this. So we set it up uh, using 4-H principles, forestry education, and employment for young people, and we try to include a mix of, quote, at-risk, close quote, young people in the crews. The extension part was that it was run as a local extension program. The crew leaders, the adult crew leaders, were volunteers and 4-H volunteers. They were also paid, and that caused some friction, but that's just how it worked out. And the students and the whole program followed the curriculum, the principles of the 4-H ROPES program, which is designed to uh, build communication skills, cooperation skills, feedback skills, uh, trust, all good stuff. There were maybe five or six crews of five or six students in each crew, say, I think, say 30 people, 30 students per, uh, um, per summer. They worked for about half the summer. They'd work in the woods doing trail maintenance and other work for Monday through Thursday, and then Friday would be payday and in class, learning a bit about forest ecology, and I helped teach that. The difference it made in the lives of the young people was uniformly positive. Every year the program was went on until I retired. Uh, the students were tested and scored according to what they knew about life skills at the beginning of the program and then at the end of the program, and there was a consistent 15-20% increase on a 1 to 10 scale. And my successor uh, wrote, a, I think, a referee journal article about that, and uh, uh, the program is still going on. And after I retired, occasionally on the street, a young man or a young woman would come up and say, hey, Mr. Hellerson, remember me? I'm Billy or Judy. And, and uh, they looked familiar, but I couldn't quite remember them. And then they'd go on about how the Forest Youth Success Program made a difference in their lives. They learned so much about teamwork, cooperation, and getting the job done. And, and uh, two stories there that I observed firsthand. And... Uh, one year I was tagging along with the crew in the woods and there was a young guy who was just kind of lagging behind and having a bad time of it. And, and I mentioned that to a crew leader um, uh, and she replied, yeah, he's having a tough time in school. Well, as it turned around, as it turned out, he turned himself around based on his experiences and forced youth success. Uh, also in that same year, we had kind of a Mutt and Jeff pair of guys, big guy and a little guy that just butted horns at the get-go. At the end of the program, uh, we were to have dinner at Skman or lunch at Skamania Lodge to celebrate, 
And as it turned out, these guys were heading down separate hallways that intersected a 90-degree blind intersection. They ran into each other. The little guy really got smacked, and I think he broke his arm. The big guy was in tears at what he had done to his buddy. But uh, despite that, we, we still had lunch. Alice Myers was our first coordinator, and um, she was also totally amazing. She hit the ground running, went from 0 to 16 about two seconds, and and made that first year the success it was. Uh, I just kind of, <laughs> Tom Lindy and I and the superintendent just kind of sat back and supported her the best we could. Uh, it's still going on. Uh, that part still has funding and the school district is still using it. It still gets written up at the uh, end of each summer. So that was Forest Youth Success. I, I feel pretty good about that one. Um, I'll stop there unless you have any questions. Well, it sounds like an incredible program and with great testimonials and quite a legacy glad to hear that it's still going to this day and hope it continues um to switch gears again let's talk a little bit about what it's like to do forestry in the columbia gorge um first question i'll ask is what's changed over the years in regards to forestry and forest health and fire and so forth in this unique environment where east meets west? Well, uh, look at that in two areas. Forest management from big outfits down to small woodland owners, and then a little bit ecologically what's changed. In terms of forest management, there's been some shifts in ownership and some consolidation. Uh, Longview Fiber was a relatively large owner, and I knew the guy that was their manager here, Steve Hansen, and uh, they were pretty low-key. They grew trees, did a good job of it, and then they got bought out by Weyerhaeuser. But So that's one change. Also, we have consolidation of two of our mills here, WKO, which was started by three loggers from, from Goldendale, uh, ran here for years. They were one of the first to introduced computer-guided sawing, and that was done in the 80s. They also have a head rig that can handle old growth, including a 72-inch debarker. Uh, they consolidated with a family-owned mill down the road in Mingen White Salmon, the SDS, Stevenson, Dobbin, Mauer, Stevenson. And I think they're now Green Diamond, and they're building a new headquarters up the road here in Carson. So, and they own all of SDS lands, which includes some in Skamania County and Klickitat County. An upshot of that is that they had a lot of oak pine woodlands, which are valuable habitat, and but not so economic for forestry. And uh, so those got transferred to a conservation organization. So that's a major change in organization. In terms of woodland owners, I've been away from it so long I couldn't tell you, but I suspect not much has changed. Uh, in Clark County, when I was here, well, woodland owners have a balance between revenue from timber and taking care of the environment. Uh, and, and some owners weight timber revenue more than environment, and others are the other way around. And I would say Clark County was more focused on timber production, perhaps, than elsewhere in the gorge. Uh, and eastern part of the gorge may be more on uh, 
forest ecosystem and, and aesthetics, that kind of thing. But as to what the trends are, I don't know. Uh, my friend and neighbor up the hill had 17 acres on a creek that was in a, across a creek that was pretty much inaccessible, but and he always kind of wanted to keep it. But when the timber prices got up over a thousand dollars a thousand, he decided it was time to harvest it because an adjoining parcel on the other side of the creek with road access was being harvested. They worked out a deal, and so he took the trees out. Although he said he still feels badly about that and uh, misses the trees, misses going up there, walk around, look for mushrooms and the like. So, yeah, I, I'd say things are, more things change, the more they stay the same, perhaps. Uh, consolidation and, and the balancing of revenue and costs versus aesthetic and ecological concerns. And that, that's about all I can say there. You want to talk about uh, major issues or anything? Well, yeah, I'd, I'd like to just chime in real quick and, and ask kind of a, a follow-up question. Um, more about your experience working with small forest owners were, were you know being the only person in that region to offer support were you called on to to go out and do a lot of site visits do like that sort of technical assistance side maybe even helping people write plans or were you doing more of a a programmatic approach of you know you you, you find there's an outbreak of a particular beetle or, or something and so you do a program on it and try to reach a broader set of landowners that way um yeah what was your experience uh, you, you know maybe you did a little, little bit of both well uh more of the latter we didn't have any outbreaks here to uh, uh really amount to any significance spent a lot of time in clark county working with the clark county farm forestry association just totally solid outfit uh, top to bottom and um, all good folks put on a number of programs there for them locally taught forest stewardship planning at least once maybe twice to a local audience and assisted teaching it um, assisted field days elsewhere but it was just kind of the basics um, the planning is good and, you know, you look at what the ground can provide, you look at your goals and see where they match up and what's feasible, what isn't feasible, that kind of thing. Uh, a little bit on forest measurement. Uh, in terms of big management issues, nothing really popped up on the radar except, um, when I started here, the scenic area was just coming into being with the restrictions within a certain view shed on either side of the river restrictions on the type of timber harvest and what color you could paint your house and this sort of thing and so that that didn't really seem to impede timber harvest much um, or have much of effect our local mill still running it ran through the last recession and uh, they were uh, a place for a lot of fire burnt big logs from from oregon to come to that were taken down as quote hazard trees close quote uh, during the fires they had there in the last couple of years so that, that's kind of the view there in terms of major issues facing forest managers everybody I think is going to be hit by global warming warmer drier weather uh, let's see was Ray felt was it Jerry Ray felt at the uh, Idaho experiment station back about oh let's see 
2004-2005, wrote a Forest Service paper with uh, several other authors on what global climate change might portend for the Intermountain region. They used the most conservative model that was there, the least warming, and using a vegetation prediction model that used a variety of temperature and precipitation variables to predict uh, plant species distribution, they discovered that by 2050, 2050, the environment's going to toast western red cedar and a lot of Douglas fir in Idaho. There might be relic hanging on here and there, but by and large, it will be inhospitable for western red cedar, and I believe the other one was Douglas fir. Uh, there will be a re rearrangement of plant communities, and I think it was something like nearly 60% of the plant communities the model predicted uh, were, what do you call them, extramural. They had never existed before. And he was pretty confident in the ability of the model to predict. He said they could get a species location down on the ground with about 95% certainty, which is pretty good odds for something like that. And this was presented at a woodland owners meeting in Spokane. And um, somebody in the audience what would you advise the government to do? And uh, Ray Felt's comment was, well, I'm retired, and I would advise the Canadian government to start building a wall. Uh, that aside, I don't know that anyone has looked at, similarly, at what might the future portend for our vegetative communities along the Cascades, east side and west side. Now, I asked a couple of Forest Service people, and they say, well, the freeze, the um, tree line is probably going to go up. There'll be less alpine habitat, and I think it might be a safe bet to say that east, east side conditions will head further west. Uh, when I worked in southern Oregon, Tom Atset, the area ecologist on the Siskiyou down there, uh, we were talking about sclerophyll brush species, and he says, well, you know, the pollen record indicates that sclerophyll brush species found now in northern California, southern Oregon, grew up in the Willamette Valley. And indeed, around here, we do have some uh, relic white leaf manzanita. So I would say in the next couple decades, uh, things could become uh, serious in terms of uh, wildfire management for our forests and then also for the people who live in the interface. And that's a rambling long answer. Uh, please ask me if I can, or let me know if I need to clarify anything. No, that, that was great. Um, and it's a, it's a long answer because it's a long, complicated situation. And, um, you know, like landowners everywhere else in Washington, you know, we're, they're all thinking about this and thinking about how those plant communities might be changing, looking at the cedar decline and wondering, yeah, is cedar going to be viable on my on my property anymore? It's a big question. And I think it's there's added complexity. This is one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you um, in the gorge because of that, as Kevin alluded to earlier, that sort of east to west transition that's not blocked by, you know, big uh, a mountain range basically um and, and you're driving along and you you transition from a wet 
west side forest into dry oak scrub by the time you hit white salmon it's it's really interesting and it adds a lot of nuances to land management so kind of tease me up for my next question uh which is about landowner objectives and, and you'd kind of alluded to it a little bit already um but you know we know that forest owners always have a different complex of of management objectives based on you know their own values and, and what they want to do with their property forest health is always one usually number one but it's at least high up there. What I wonder from you, given what you just said, um, have you seen forest health become a more primary sort of active objective as opposed to a passive objective? And have you seen any other sort of change up in objectives over the course of your career um, into, into more recent years? Well, I'll do my best to answer that one. My data are very minimal in that regard. A couple of weeks ago, I got a call from, uh, golly, I can't think of her name now. She is a forester for the, uh, the Yakima Nation over in Glenwood. Uh, they had a stand of ponderosa pine. They have several stands of ponderosa pine in the hollows that are that need tending. They're too much fuel and they want to thin them. And this particular area was hit by the heat dome event, killed all the needles on the big pine trees. And they had come back with one year of growth subsequently, and she wanted to know if they should still continue uh, thinning the stands where the trees continue to recover. And I told her that I thought they probably would. If the needles were long, they were probably good because they had a lot of groundwater to um, take advantage of. And in two or three years, they'd recover their initial leaf area and, and uh, then flammability would be back to where it started. So, um, yeah, the tribe is... Um, the tribe, I should say, the Yakima Nation is aware of that, certainly. I, I would say Hood River County Forestry, which owns 30,000 acres within Hood River County of Timberland and another 12,000 down in central Oregon, is also very aware of that. Um, going across the Hood River Valley, the rainfall goes from about 40 to 60 inches on the west side to maybe 20 inches on the drier east side sites, just like southern Oregon, just barely enough to uh, support tree growth. Genetically, there is a difference between seedlings growing for reforestation from a seed source on the west to that on the east. The seedlings are grown in lava nursery relatively uh, good environment and one of their foresters told me years ago yeah after two years the seed seedlings from the west side are at least twice the height as the seedlings from the east side so um i guess where i'm going with this rambling around it might be more important as the years go on starting now to ensure good seed source match up with the site uh, the reforestation of the big chunks of ground I've seen here harvested, I asked about seed source and I, to the landowner, and I was met with a blank stare. For all I know, you know, the, they might be planting seedlings grown from Pacific County Douglas fir, which means that they're not particularly, most will be not adapted to this environment. Uh, we're hotter and drier here than along the coast. So that was kind of a rambling answer, but uh, yeah, let me know if I can add anything or take anything away from that one, Patrick. 
No, I just want to point out um, that our, one of our last guests, our, our, our two guests ago, sorry, was Jeff DeBell, and we discussed this very topic of, uh, you know, seed, you, we were specifically talking about assisted migration and seedling transfer, um, but really addressing this, this idea that, um, you know, planting, tree planting is where we're going to be doing a lot of our climate adaptation. Um, but Kevin, I know you had a question. I'll pass it on to you. Well, to to kind of have a big wrap-up question, Oli, over the course of your career working with small forest landowners, what were the biggest lessons that you learned during that time period? Biggest lessons? Uh, for me personally, uh, listen, be responsive, and avoid dropping into the expert modality. Uh, you know, I've got a Ph.D., syndrome uh, from the woodland owners respect for the land uh, knowing that yeah uh, timber harvesting is important when we need the money we'll cut the trees but we're going to do the best in the meantime to keep the ecosystem ticking over so i guess that's about it uh, i guess i admire the woodland owners for their commitment and and uh, sticking with it and doing the best they can I think that's a, a very important point that maybe doesn't doesn't need a lot of expounding on because <laughs> you know listening is is really critical and not just coming in like a like the expert that knows everything about forestry. I can say for sure I've learned uh, so much from landowners that I work with in this a short time that I've had this job. I've only been doing this six years. Kevin's been doing it longer and you did it for much longer than I, but I, I know that I've uh, uh, added to my my degrees, I guess. I feel like I have a third degree just from landowner education and learning what people actually do on the ground. Uh, so I appreciate that answer. And I appreciate you coming on to talk with us, Soli. Um, you know, this was a, a really great discussion and, and I'm excited to, to keep hearing from you, even though you're retired. I hope you don't mind if we bug you from time to time to to know what's going on in the gorge. Do you have any final thoughts, anything else you want to share uh, before we wrap up? Oh, nothing really. I want to say thanks to the two of you for thinking of uh, contacting me in this regard, and I, I hope my comments um, are useful. Oh, absolutely they were, and it was our pleasure. So, so thank you, Oli. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in for another episode of the Forest Overstory podcast. Uh, we really appreciate you um, and your, your support of the program. Um, as always, before we sign off, I want to point you to our website. That is forestry.wsu.edu. There you can learn about any programs that we have coming up in your neck of the woods, uh, as well as a whole slew of, of different forestry resources that can help you with your land management or if you just have general interest in forestry. So with that, I will sign off and we will see you next month. Mm -hmm.